With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome back to Heard Tell. Let's go back over to the UK because there's some stuff going on over there you may have heard of. Uh, new face to the program. Always enjoy our UK contributors. Uh, Kalen Payton is joining us from over there. Uh, he's a trainee lawyer. I don't like that term very much, but he's also studied history. He's written a book. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, he, um, director of The Speaker, a political outlet over there. Kalen, great to see you, buddy. Appreciate your time today, my friend. Yeah, cheers. Thank you for having me on. So nothing major going on over there. I guess we can just talk about <laughs> football and the uh, Premier League table, right? Exactly, exactly. Not much going on here at all. <laughs> As uh, we're recording this PMQ's Prime Minister questions just ended here about eh, about 45 minutes ago, yeah. uh, U.S. time. Uh, let's just start right there. Richie Sunak, um, of course, he does all the ceremonial stuff with the king, and he had his first side of 10 Downing Street and all that. PMQ's is really your job as far as the public-facing job. How'd he do first time out? Yeah, so it was, um, I think his, his own party, the Conservative Party, will be pretty pleased with how he performed, actually, because um, today was really his first full day in the job. He took office yesterday, formed his cabinet last night, and then today was that first sort of parliamentary bit of process that we have over here. And um, yeah, Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the opposition, the Labour Party leader, was uh, throwing some, some pretty tough questions at him, but he... Um, he seemed to bat them off quite well. He certainly performed a lot better than his um, predecessor, Liz Truss. Now, to be fair to Liz Truss, now we all know what happened there, 45 days mm. in office. For those that are not familiar with PMQs and have never watched them, the British Parliament, they sit in benches opposite facing. So the two sides are facing each other with the speaker in the middle, the dispatch box is in the middle when you stand to speak. I encourage folks to watch this. It's a great piece mm. of political theater that I wish we did because most of our people wouldn't be able to handle it, frankly. What's really interesting here with the Liz Trust situation is actually what I was watching today was what's going on behind him. Let's call this what it is. During the leadership race, we covered it. We had people on the show about it. The whole thing of the leadership race was the MPs all wanted Sunak when it went to the larger party. That's where Liz Trust had her backing and she won. But it was very obvious now. I mean, let's just we got to deal with the facts as they are on the ground. It's very apparent she never really had the backing of the MPs. That's what I was watching today. Does they have yeah. now? It's, of course, it's performative, but they did seem to want to show a solid wall of Tory today. It mm. does look like he's at least going to have that piece that Liz Truss, frankly, never had. Yeah, 100%. Because um, when she won that leadership race, um, literally just over a month ago now, um, she only just squeaked through to the final two with her own MPs. So the final two, uh, they do a lot of voting within the party first. The final two then go to the membership of the Conservative Party. Now, she only got through on the final round of voting and was a long, long way behind him um, to get there. So when the members then selected her, she had a lot of her parliamentary colleagues really not supporting her at all. And so that means that when the going got tough and it got tough very, very quickly, they were not there to support her and it became really untenable really, really quickly for her, which is why you saw that after just 45 days, she had to resign. Whereas Boris Johnson, who had about six months of really turbulent politics was able to survive a lot longer because he had the backing of his party. 
and then you saw today with um with Sunak the MPs behind him he ended up getting the support of around 200 of them in the uh, in the election last week out of about 360 MPs which means that he has got a really solid base of support now in the party and he's going to be a lot more uh, it'll be a lot harder to topple him and so when the going gets tough it's going to be much harder for the opposition to to really dig in on him because he's going to have that that support behind him and he's going to be in a much more solid position and i think that was probably reflected in in the way that he approached pmqs today um he threw a lot of sort of red meat to his back benches went in and threw a lot of the um the phrases that they really enjoy a lot of the jabs at the former labor leader jeremy corbyn that they love that kind of stuff talking about um Brexit and the vaccine response and how he as Chancellor responded to COVID that was something that played really well with his backbenchers and I think because of the support that he has in his party is able to do that a lot more effectively than Truss ever could. Yeah Caelan Payton joining us from over in the UK. Uh, Let's be adults here. Politics has a lot of momentum and gravity to it. Mm. Part of the problem it Liz Truss got caught up in it. Richie Sunak's going to have to figure out a way to overcome it. There's a gravity problem with the conservative party. They've been in power for 12 years, no matter what their record is. Aside from that, that's just a really, really long time, especially in UK politics. This is getting close to a record in the modern era. They've just been in power for a long time. Uh, The last election was, of course, the Boris Johnson, which he, you know, endlessly told us about his mandate. He's gone. So that's gone. There's going to be continuous cries for a general election. There's some gravity stuff besides the politics, besides the economic crisis, besides the political chaos of the last 60 days. This is just going to be a steep hill to climb before you put anything else on it just because of the gravity of the current chronology of what's going on with mm. the Conservative Party right now, right? Yeah, 100%. Because um, unlike in, in the states where your elections are fixed um, every four years, we have sort of a window where an election has to be held. It has to be within five years, but the... Uh, government basically gets to decide when that election is so we've got a bit of a weird situation at the moment where our government's in quite a weak position because of the turmoil of the last month and a half but really it's been going on a lot longer than that so there's a lot of cries in the country for an election there's a lot of cries um, from the Labour Party across the other side of Parliament uh, for an election but they don't have control over that it is the government who can control it now we saw um, with Liz Trust, there were really increasing calls for an election because of how weak her position was as Prime Minister. So it really depends how these first few weeks and months go for Sunak as to whether we're going to end up in a situation where an election is likely. Because um, if he's able to cement his position, if he's got his parliamentary party behind him and can perform well, there is nothing the opposition can do. No matter how turbulent our politics gets, there won't be an election until he calls one. And that could run all the way up until January 2025. So um, it's difficult. And that really does put the pressure on him because it is about how well he performs as to whether his party will end up having to face an election or not. And whether he will sort of have his government swept out of power or whether he can maintain this sort of semblance of credibility and stability, which will allow him to keep going.
A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Yeah, Kalen Pe- Payton. See, I told you I'd mess it up. Kalen <laughs> Payton, uh, join us from the UK. You were writing in 1828 about mm. this. You broke it into two parts, like I did, and everybody, pretty much everybody. Look, there's the economic yeah. crisis and the political crisis. We're talking the political crisis, so let's just stay on that for yeah. just a moment. You talk about Richie Sunak mentioned it this morning. The manifesto. Mm-hmm. Are they going to have to shift gears policy wise? Because I know the Liz Trust stuff. Look. Politics and policy and optics all go together. The optics were so bad with Liz Trust when they did. Yeah. We call it a flip-flop. Y'all call it a U-turn. You had a great line in this piece where you said the handbrake turn. That's a drifting reference mm-hmm. for those of you from Logan that don't know what that is. Um, that really hard just when you just completely reverse yourself. Even if you're completely right on the merits, that's just it always looks bad. There's no real recovery from that. What's Sunak's first like? He needs some layups here, just political yeah. strategy wise. He needs like a couple of easy wins, something to kind of get some momentum going. Are there any on the board right now? A couple of easy things he can maybe try to get done. Yeah. So this is ultimately, I think, where Liz Truss failed is that she started to pursue this economic agenda, which she didn't have any kind of mandate for. She veered so far from that 2019 manifesto that you mentioned. That even her own party were like, what is going on here? This isn't what we're elected on. This isn't what we want as a party. Now, Sunak yesterday in his first speech as prime minister immediately came out and said that his mandate is rooted in that manifesto so that he's going to stick by it and he's going to really implement the politics and the policy that was contained in that manifesto. So um, I think in terms of the low hanging fruit, the first thing is to reverse most of what Liz Truss did. Now, uh, His chancellor did that um, last week. He's already reversed all of the tax cuts um, that Liz Truss had tried to implement. But also he's now signaled that he's going to go further and and reverse a lot of the sort of environmental policy that she was trying to implement. So, for example, uh, she tried to reverse the ban on fracking. Now, I know fracking is very popular in the States, but we've got obviously a very different geography to you. Uh, we don't have sort of that vast space where you can frack safely. Most of our fracking sites are within, I believe, 10 to 20 miles of a residential area, which obviously causes problems for um, sort of ground shimmers and um, subsidence and things like that, which can obviously damage people's homes. Um, so that was obviously incredibly controversial because a lot of the areas where fracking tends to take place in the UK were constituencies with Conservative MPs. And so immediately Sunak has, re- um, has reversed that policy of Liz Truss and um, re-implemented that ban on fracking, which certainly for a lot of Conservative voters and for a lot of his own MPs is an incredibly popular decision that he's taken. And I think those kind of decisions are what we're going to see from him, particularly early on, is just reverting course back towards that 2019 manifesto, trying to 
um, do those policies that are traditionally popular with conservative voters and with the conservative members of parliament that support him. Yeah. Let's let's talk about the economic crisis for just a second. Yeah. Uh, look, a lot of this is outside everybody's control. We, we just did the chart uh, two days ago on our show. Mm. Inflation is a worldwide problem right now. Of course, uh, the war in Ukraine is driving part of that. Part of that is just yeah. trends and cycles. You know, economics has a, you know, a circadian rhythm to it of up and down. And this is just mm -hmm. a down. It's worldwide right now. The problem with something like inflation and an economic crisis like the war in Ukraine, which caused an energy crisis, is it exposes what was already there. Yeah. Rishi Sunak, when he was chancellor to Exeter, or however you say that crazy word you all got over there. <laughs> exactly, when he, yeah. Yeah, when he was chancellor, he talked about this openly. I don't think he'll talk yeah. about it quite as openly as prime minister because, frankly, he can't politically. He talked about it. He's like, look, we've got, some, we've got economic mess that we haven't dealt with in many, many years. And then when you have a crisis, all of a sudden those fault lines become really big canyons. Now, yeah. he's not going to talk that bluntly now that he's prime minister, but that was his role for a long time. He's a very smart individual. He's done very well for himself in business privately. How's he addressed this in a way of going like, look, there's some just math here that's bad. And this is going to be bad. The UK recession that's coming, they're talking about this thing maybe being 18 months to three years. This is not mm -hmm. going to be a quick fix no matter what. How does he communicate that bluntly while still giving people hope and still not uh, politically giving people like, hey, we're going to work on this, but it's going to take time. That's a heavy lift yeah. for anybody, a brand new PM. That's a really steep hill to climb. But that's what he's got to do, isn't it? Yeah, well, what's interesting is that so in the summer when Boris Johnson first resigned, we had a much longer leadership contest, which was about six or seven weeks long. And he spent the entirety of that leadership contest warning what is happening in the UK economy and also what would happen if Liz Truss implemented the economic policy that she was pursuing. And you saw him say that in his first speech once he accepted the leadership and uh, again today in PMQs that um, we are in a very, very difficult economic situation, but he's gained credibility for spending that first leadership campaign, which he ultimately lost, talking about those issues and explaining exactly what's going to happen um, if we pursue a Liz Trust style economic policy. So he can now take office in a much stronger position and say, well, I, I thought this was going to happen. I told you this was going to happen. And I told you the type of policy we need to get out of it. And so he's now standing quite legitimately on a platform where he can say, we do need to increase taxes. I know it's going to be painful, but that's what we need to do to sort of settle the UK economy. And so as much as it's going to be very difficult, and I think it will be politically painful for him, the Liz Truss era was so bad. And he was the one that was more than anyone else warning about what might happen ahead of time. He's now in a position where he can implement what would generally be incredibly unpopular tax rises or spending cuts, but have a greater legitimacy to do it and um, probably have greater support in doing it because of how bad that Liz Truss era went. Callum Patton joining us. 
Let, let's talk about Liz Trust for just a second. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't want to do the legacy thing because it's not fair. Because she was kind of set up to fail, and then she perpetuated that with some really bad decision making, not mm. having, not understanding the room that she didn't have the support to go big and then going big. So it's you know not not all on her, but she didn't help it any. Yeah, I know you mentioned Neville Chamberlain writing about it, and but you know these things are complicated when you go back in history because yeah, Neville Chamberlain gets all the mess for the for the appeasement stuff, but he also built up the RAF, which ended up saving Britain. So you know these things have layers to it. Mm. When we get a year or two away from the Liz Trust <clears throat> thing, what's the lesson going to be? Is it a political lesson? Is it a backroom politic lesson? What do you think's going to be when they teach this in political theory in a year or two from now in university? Yeah. What do you think they're going to be saying about that era? Not so much her personally, but like, hey, this this is an anomaly in British history. How do we keep this mm. from ever happening again? Yeah, I think probably two main lessons will be taken from it. One is an economic one. It's that you may believe in an ideology very strongly. You may quite rightly think that we should be cutting taxes, which is obviously not an unpopular opinion however you have to be wary of the economic climate that you're in and understand that just because you believe something and you think it's the right idea doesn't mean that it's the right time for that kind of policy and that kind of um, um yeah economic policy the other one and i think it's probably going to end up being the much bigger lesson is a political one it's that she was elected by around 60, 65% of the Conservative Party members, not a particularly small mandate from her party. She then had the death of the Queen, which left her with a lot, quite a lot of goodwill. Then she implemented the mini budget, which in the first day or so was incredibly popular with a lot of Tory members because it was this great tax cutting bill that reminded people of Margaret Thatcher, who is still to this day seen by the Conservative Party as sort of a standard bearer in a way that Ronald Reagan is similarly seen in the States. And that was really popular. But then the markets reacted. They absolutely hated it. The value of the pound against the dollar fell. Gilt yields rose, which made the cost of borrowing much more expensive for the government. Then you had a lot of turbulence in sort of um, in uh, insurance markets and pension funds where a lot of... Um, investments are tied up and you had to have interventions by the Bank of England suddenly you saw all of this fall away and within three weeks of that mini budget she was gone and I think the main lesson that will be taken is the fact that she did this incredibly quickly she had no need to announce such bold policy immediately she could have taken a much more measured and slow approach because there was no immediate election coming along she could have spaced out this policy over a few years tried to implement it slowly in much the way that Thatcher did it took her about five or six years before she went really really bold she waited for the economic conditions to be right um trust went really quickly really really heavy on sort of the ideology of tax cutting without any kind of thought for whether that was appropriate for the moment but I think even more significant is that she refused to take any kind of advice that suggested that might not be appropriate. She sacked the top civil servant in the Treasury just before the budget. She didn't um, speak to the Office of Budget Responsibility, which basically oversees a lot of these budgets and makes sure that they are sort of fiscally prudent and the right thing for the economy at that time. And so 
the fact that she ignored a lot of these things, pushed ahead really quickly without any kind of um, thought or ongoing plan is the ultimate failure of her um, premiership. And I think that's probably the major lesson that people end up taking from it. Just real quick, though, before we move off, let's trust. At the time, we all felt like the pause was probably beneficial, the national mourning period for the queen. Mm. In retrospect, was it really a bad thing for her? Because it seemed like it avalanched the whole thing. Maybe that stop gag, instead of being a respite, it just damned everything up, and then it just avalanched after it. In retrospect, is that an accurate assessment, you think? I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. I think in many ways, it was a bit of an opportunity for her because... She, up until quite recently, was not a particularly frontline figure in in UK politics. She became the foreign secretary, I believe, um, earlier this year. And so that was her first real big exposure to the public. But still, she wasn't particularly well known. So when she took office, that was her opportunity to define herself to the public. So in a way, that pause gave her the opportunity to be seen a lot in a much more... um, friendly way in a way that you're not going to have that immediate pressure thrown on you you're going to be seen as a leader in an important time but you're not going to have a lot of pressure on you there was a lot of willingness and goodwill there but then within a week of that whole morning period being over is when the mini budget happened and that's really what led to her downfall and whether whether the morning period made them go into that a bit more blindly or whether it actually you know, saved her another two weeks if they'd done that budget sooner and she might have ended up losing her um, her job sooner. So it's difficult to say, but I would probably say that it was an opportunity for her rather than that being the reason that she fell. Um, it's just an opportunity, the opportunity that she didn't really take. Yeah, I think missed opportunity might be the subheading on this whole ordeal of the last uh, 60 yeah. days or so. Real quick mm-hmm. before we let you go. Uh, for the outside observers like us, uh, overseas in America, the worldwide audience that we have, give us a couple mile posts to be watching for with Rishi Sunak. Obviously, he's he's going to go a little bit slower than Liz trusted because you know he he's a yeah. smart guy. He saw what just happened. Give us one or two things to watch for as the news starts trickling out over the next couple of weeks. What should we watch for? What's kind of the first milestone besides you know making it forty five days without getting sacked? Mm. Yeah. What's a couple things we should be watching for to measure how Rishi Sunak is doing as a prime minister? Yeah, so I think the first thing is that at the moment, the Conservatives are so far behind the polls. It's something like 30 points that you'd imagine he is going to start closing that gap to a more um, typical level, maybe 10, 15, 20 points. It'll be interesting to watch those polls in the coming weeks to see whether he does actually close that gap or not. So I think that would be quite an important thing to watch for because it will really define, I think, particularly how our politics goes next year in 2023, whether the Conservatives still are extremely far behind the polls or whether they start to close that gap. The other one is the fiscal statement that's coming uh, in in mid-November, I think the 17th of November, which is essentially going to outline his economic policy moving forward. 
obviously it was the economic policy of Liz Truss that led to her downfall. So this is going to be something to watch for to see how he does it. You'd imagine it's going to be a lot more prudent that it might see some moderate tax increases and things like that. But obviously that could have its own political ramifications if he does start to increase tax. So I think really the main thing to look out for is that statement and see what approach he takes, but also to see whether he's able to start closing that gap in the coming weeks. Yeah. Callum Payton. Uh, great stuff, my friend. You wrote a book called 2020 as it happened. You could definitely do mm. a, a sequel on 2022 between the <laughs> queen and three prime ministers. And we're not even done with it yet. Uh, yeah. so you might want to look into that. Might want to go ahead and get that you know, <laughs> locked down as copyright. My yeah. friend. Uh, we'll definitely have you back. Until we get you back on Hertel again, let folks know where they can follow you, what you have going on with your writings and other things, my friend. Yeah, yeah. so my Twitter is um, at Peyton underscore Callum. Um, so do have a look over there. And if you want to check out um, The Speaker, which is um, a media organization that I run, then that's at Speaker Politics. And you can see some of the writing that I do over there. Yep, we'll link to all of that, including a couple of his pieces. Uh, he wrote about the trust has left the mail and possibly difficult for her successor. That's the one we were quoting from here. He's written some other stuff. We'll link to all of it. Make sure you follow him and keep up with him. We'll have you back on, man, because it ain't going to get any less interesting over in the UK. <laughs> exactly. Besides, that means we don't have to talk about our own problems. We can focus on y'all's. Uh, thank you so much for the time today, sir. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thank you very much. Yes, sir. Oh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Amanda Griffith's with us. We're going to do something fun with her, though. We usually hit her up for really serious, heavy topics because she's one of these real smart people with letters after her names. But this one's going to be fun because you're well-versed in the classics. Uh, I grew up in a household with a you know Greekophile dad, so I had to learn my classics growing up. This got posed on Twitter, and I think you're the perfect person to ask about this because we were debating it a little bit. Um, I will credit it where credit is due. Um Moses, um, Isaiah 545 at the, the Twitter, asked this question, does America have a national epic? And they listed a few things here. Of course, ancient Greek, you have the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, ancient Rome had the Aeneid, and I'm probably saying that wrong. India has something that I'm not even going to take a shot at uh, pronouncing. Germany, of course, had Foss. I would also throw the ring cycle in there, but that's just me being in Germany. I think the ring cycle has a lot more uh, cultural rights. Spain, they did Don Quixote. Um, England, maybe Tolkien, Beowulf, even though Beowulf was said in Norwegian, it was an English poem. Uh, Ireland, uh, Scotland, Osanian, uh, Scandinavia had Volsunga. There's some, of course, all the Viking stuff for all of the different Norwegian Nordic countries. Yeah. I love this question for this reason. Does America have a national epic? Now, I have a couple goofy ones I'm going to throw at you first, but just off the top of your head, you're a classicist. You study this stuff. Her Twitter handle is Ajax because, you know, Ajax, that Ajax, not the cleaning Ajax. Love him. Yeah. That's a classic, but that's an epic. You know, Ajax is a part of the epic. Does America have an epic? So this would actually be a wonderful question to ask my sister, who is legitimately a classicist. She's a classics professor now. 
But we don't um, have her. We have you. We don't. And I'm definitely not her. But uh, what I would say is that technically, no, because America was founded after the epic tradition really had its heyday. You had, I, I really, it really sort of died out mostly in the medieval era. And even, even that is very, very late. I'm talking about, you know, then that's when you would have things really being written down and transcribed. So America doesn't have a, a national epic in that technical sense. No. Also because it's a, it's, it's a, um, America, despite what some people might argue, doesn't have a uh, really doesn't have blood ties to the soil the way that a lot of a lot of areas that do have epics will, will typically have. So it's not as though there's this people that comes from this land that are given and that are that are given this land to then rule it. Um, as you would see, typically an epic sort of explains how that all goes down. Um, so it, it's it's not really the proper country. This is this is again the stilted academic answer. It's not the proper country to have an ep an epic in that sense. All right, I agree with everything you just said, but I'm going to pitch you one anyway, and I'm okay. going to bend I'm going to bend the definition a little bit because we're American. We just remix what everybody else does anyway and make it better because right. that's what we do. Let me pitch it to you this way, okay? Mm -hmm. Everything you said was true. This was after the epic period. But if you go to the 1800s, especially the mid to late 1800s, that's when a lot of our modern take, and I know I'm, I'm stretching modern, but that's when a lot of the modern kind of classical revivalist stuff was written. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, was in the 1800s. All, you know, every 150, 200 years, all of a sudden, everybody pays attention to the Greeks and the Romans again. It's like a cycle throughout history. There was a cycle in the 1800s and 18, late 1800s where all these philosophers started digging through the Greek stuff again and the Roman stuff again. So let me pitch you this one because it's, it doesn't fit perfect. But we kind of had a big deal happen in the mid 1800s, right? We had our civil war. And that is the one point in American history where all those divergent balls hit. Of course, it was flammatory. We had, you know, hundreds of thousands of deaths. We had just ripped the country apart. But from that point until now, I don't know of anything else that has shaped our nation more, that has had more writing about it, that has more historical significance, that has more cultural significance. I think if you had to pick an epic and it fits that time period where people started talking about epics and classics again, and it happened in real time at that period, I think that might be the closest thing we have in the American national consciousness to an epic is the American Civil War. I think in, in terms of the, the national consciousness, you, you're correct. As you're talking about that era, by the way, and then this this is this is not directly uh, that era per se. But I was thinking you certainly do have these folk tales, right? That I think might fit the mold in some in some regard as an epic. Daniel Boone, uh, Tom Sawyer, Huckleberry Finn. If you wanted to say what are the American epics. These I might call American epics. See, as you're talking, I'm having more of an opportunity to think this through, uh, because not only are they, uh, you know, are are they are they works, uh, you know, that, that that encapsulate the spirit of a particular era. They sort of encapsulate the spirit the spirit of a country, right? So again, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. All right, this is this is classic when you think all America and you think pull yourself up by your bootstraps, that kind of thing, spirit of adventure, a uh, rugged individualism, 
all of that. You get that with, with these characters. Now, when you talk about the Civil War, it's interesting because that is, you're right, that's an oral tradition. Yes, people have written things down about the Civil War. You have Civil War diaries. Um, I think what would need to happen to consider the Civil War an epic in and of itself would be a little bit more codification of a narrative. Because when you go through, um, there's a lot of dispute about what happened during the Civil War. And I'm not even talking about, you know, what caused it, what were the factors. There's just so much at play. So when you say the Iliad, uh, the Odyssey, these are epics. Well, the Iliad that's taken from the Trojan War, but you don't say that the Trojan War itself is an epic. Um, so I would say that the Civil War provides fodder for epics. And I'm not disagreeing with you per se. I'm just saying to, like, to refine the answer a little bit, various accounts of the Civil War perhaps might be apocal, might, might, be, might be more in that vein. Um, but so I'll, t I'll, I'll see your answer and then I'll also kind of modify mine a little bit and say something like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn would be good American epics. I haven't seen this question. I imagine someone might have answered that. But they, they, they did. And okay. I, I take your point that, yeah, if you want to make it fit, making that like the Trojan War, which is what most of the, you know, Iliad and Odyssey was revolved around, was either going to and coming back from the Trojan War. I think that works too. The, the criticism, of course, is going to be that the problem with a Huck Finn and things like that as a national narrative is it leaves out a lot of our national narrative. It leaves out the mess that the Civil War is. It leaves out right. the massive influx of immigration after the westward expansion that changed our country. Right. It, it, it's, it's, let's be fair, the criticism is true. You know, that's kind of a sanitized, whitewashing version of American history, which, of course, epics are like that because they're told well, right. to be good stories. Yeah. So that's why I kind of went to the Civil War first because that's the only one where everybody knows a little, at least a little piece of it, but it's still messy enough that you can get real history without all the, the mythification. Not that there's not a lot of mythification around the civil war, but I take your point. I think it works better as the Trojan war comparison than an overall epic, but that was just the first one I thought of. Let me give you a couple that are a little sillier, but I think okay. they're a little fun. Okay. Um, these of course don't fit, but as a genre style, Somebody brought this up. I thought this was actually interesting because this is kind of an ethos thing. Westerns, which are kind of uniquely American, at least in cinema especially, mm -hmm. they have some epic traits when you start thinking about things like how the Western, it's kind of uniquely American. It's it's that spirit of adventure kind of stuff. It's not a perfect square peg in that round hole, but I could see that. Yeah, no, I, I think I think westerns then there 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 a lot of them are structured kind of as epics. They're supposed to be a lot of the old westerns. I think are probably there are a couple, aren't they, that are supposed to be modeled after the the Odyssey or what have you. Um, epics also to a point. If you look at the traditional epic style, typically lends legitimacy to some type of rulership or to uh, a people's right to rule. Um, so if we think about, you know, d does, a, does a Western or do any of these things we've mentioned back and forth, uh, do those lend legitimacy, maybe not to institutions of government, but to a particular way of being that we consider all American? I think Westerns certainly do that. Yeah, absolutely. Westerns are great. You know, Westerns themselves, like, like, you know, like I was just saying, are sort of modeled after a lot of a lot of epics. So I can dig. I can dig that.
two others real quick that made this okay. list. Um, both of these, I actually, I like them individually. I don't know if they raise to the level of epic. Um, this one, <laughs> this this is one of my favorite books that definitely need an editor because you could have cut out over a third of this book and made it a lot tighter because it gets into nomenclature. But as far as one-liners go, as far as epics go, as far as forming American literature going forward, Moby Dick. It's not, it's not arguable that that's, I, if you had to go with a piece of literature, that one's going to be hard to beat in the American canon. Although I would say maybe Tom Sawyer is probably more of an epic than, than Moby. Uh, well, not more of an American epic than Moby Dick. Uh, but yes, I think that's. It that's is written in the British for the uninitiated. It's an American story, but it was very much a British seafaring narrative. Yeah. So yeah, I, I take your point. Yeah, no, I think, I think, I, but I think that Moby Dick is certainly again that's kind of meant to be an epic if you look if you or it, it it has an apocryphal bent to it right it's got a kind of hero's journey type of return you know coming and going um yeah that that would that would certainly fit Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. This one's a little more obscure, although people will know the one part of it when I say it, but probably a lot of folks don't realize it's actually part of a, of a larger series. Uh, it's I, I'm going to preface this by being honest. I've actually read the original book. It's unreadable. It is utterly unreadable. You cannot read it without a modern translation of this, even though it's written in America in English because it's unreadable. The Last of the Mohicans, it's part of the leather stocking tales. But if you're going to go to foundational myth-making, for a people and a culture and a country that's probably about as close as it gets as foundational myth making as the leather stocking tales and of course the most famous part of that is the last of the mohicans narrative yeah yeah that was i th i think i think that one's a pretty good one that's a very good one that's a, that's a very good one um again all of these fit right they they are they, they all fit in different ways that i think are really cool and again like american syncretism so that so no there isn't one grounded solid american epic but there are a whole bunch that if you compile them together as we've been doing you get these core themes that come up again and again and i think do not only shine a light on certain aspects of the American spirit, you'd call it, but also legitimate it and say, this is a really cool thing and applaud it and praise it and also critique it in interesting ways, you know, shine a light on maybe some of the more difficult or challenging aspects of the American spirit and the American story as well. So I think these all work when you put them together, uh, just like, again, this, this unique 
blend of ness that becomes american ness that is so wonderful yeah and on that fun. yeah and on that one i i think this one at first i was kind of like eh, and then the more i thought about it, the more i thought this actually really really fits because it goes into the one i started with which was the civil war this was a precursor to the civil war so if that's going to be your troy narrative um mm-hmm. you know um if you're going to have an agamemnon you're going to have to have something that predates that Uncle Tom's Cabin, Harriet yeah. Beecher Stowe. Um, it was actually called Life Among the Lowly was what it was actually called originally. Two volumes. This really cranked up the social consciousness on a lot of levels. The more I thought about it, the more I looked at it. Yeah, that one fits. <laughs> that absolutely fits. I think that's a great one to add to the, to the American canon uh, for a number of reasons. And I mean, to the American epic canon in particular that we've been making up just now, uh, it, that absolutely is, uh, is a powerful one. And I'd, I'd include that for sure. All right. Now my silly one. Um, but before I get to that, do you have one off the top of your head that you can think of that you would think either silly or serious uh, epic for America before I give you my goofy one? Again, I'm going to I'm going to say Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. Um, and I don't know if there's a silly one that I have. Uh, no, I want to hear yours. Let's go for it. All right. Odysseus was a piker compared to any American trying to find a McDonald's ice cream machine that works during peak hours. Odysseus is a piker no matter what, man, but that's perfect. That's perfect. That's like someone that is, who, that is our Iliad is trying to find during peak hours an ice cream machine that is not in its maintenance cycle. I thought they were always all like in their maintenance cycles. I, I heard there's a reason for that, and it has to well, do. They with shut them all down like for regulatory a failure. It's a conspiracy, man. No, I heard no. Like I, I heard that there, there's some weird reason that 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 McDonald's ice cream machines are always in their maintenance phase and it has to do with the fact that and it's it's sort of like it's actually not the government directly it has to do with it but it's a lesson about how centralization always fails um someone should look this up uh because and 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 read about it and think about how this is a metaphor because i can't remember off the top of my head but yes that would be an epic and someone should write it and someone should write the write the movie for it as well and if anyone wants to write a part for me that'd be great that 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 might be one of my uh if I go down for surgery for a while, that might be one of my hospital things. I might have to write up the epic of the ice cream machine. So we Please may have to do, do that. All right. Amanda Griffiths, this is a little more fun topic, but you know, epics are important. You know, natural national ethos is important. I thought this was a fun topic. I knew you'd be the perfect person to ask about it because you are well versed in the classics. So I will end with this since he is your favorite. Who would the American Ajax be? Ooh, I can't say me. Um, I, you know, no, it can't be you. No, I was joking. I was joking. Anyway, no. Who is who is the American Ajax? Here's the thing. Here's I think part of why I like Ajax so much is because Ajax has so many American um, qualities that I would identify as being very much American and individualistic. Um, there is pride, certainly. There is this uh, sense of self-determinedness and sense of individualism. Salvation's light is in the work of our hands. Um, there's, you know, the sense of your spirit leaps at a challenge. Um, your spirit leaps uh, at the opportunity to prove yourself. 
who's the American Ajax? Uh, I almost said someone like Elon Musk. He's not even American. Um, I think, and Elon Musk's more more of an Odysseus type of fellow anyway. Gotcha. Um, yeah. I'll take a stab at it. Okay, okay. If he gets killed at San Juan Hill, Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah, I was I was actually that Teddy Roosevelt occurred to me. Um, but he but he's got to die at San Juan Hill, you know, at the gates of Troy. He can't he can't do the rest yeah. of it because then it doesn't fit anymore. Yeah. But if you have him just where he self made himself a vigorous life, all that, uh, the bully stuff, that would work. I, I he was, fits all that. Not physically, obviously, he wasn't the imposing no. figure with the warhammer. But mentally, rhetorically, attitude-wise, he jumps off the page at me. Um, there'd probably be some other ones more physical, but that that's the first one I thought of. You're not going to believe me, but he was also the first one that I thought of. I then I tried to go for someone more contemporary, but yes, I think he's a, he's a great one. He's a great one to sort of say that's the American Ajax. Yeah. This has been fun. I'm glad we did this. Thanks for this, making the time for me. We'll do more. We're going to have to do more classical stuff. Yeah. Fun, but, uh, Thanks Amanda for bringing Yeah, definitely. Amanda Griffith, let folks know where they can find you until we get you back on Hertel again, which will be often and frequently because we yes. love having Yes, and I love being here. I, people can find me on Twitter at Ajax the Griff. That's how Andrew knew. A-J-A-X-T-H-E-G-R-I-F-F. And uh, you can also follow me at my contributor page at Young Voices. That's young-voices.com. Scroll down you'll see, or click on contributors. You'll see me, all the work that I've done uh, with Young Voices published through them, as well as media hits. Always love to engage with folks. So on Twitter and also young-voices.com, my contributor page is there. We'll have to get you some kind of Warhammer animation. Like when Please our do. budget gets high enough, that'll be fun. Please do. Um, I don't know what your personal gates of Troy will be, but please avoid them because we want yeah. you to hang around for a while longer. Yeah. Life is uh, just my gates of Troy. I don't know. Stay away from Hector. All uh, right. Uh, Amanda Griffiths, uh, always a pleasure, man. Thank you for the time. Thank you so much, Andrew. Yes, man. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Here's a fun one from our friend Keith Conrad. It's a very excellent news side quest newsletter, which you need to subscribe to for free. We get all kinds of good little tidbits from them. Let's go over to the UK, even though this was written by the Aussies. A cafe in the UK has come up with an epic way to reward customers for simply being polite. Chai Shop's new policy means a chai tea could cost you $3.40, that's Australian dollars, if you're polite. Or nine bucks if you're rude. A sign at the Preston Cafe explains the price gouging. If customers were to say, hello, Desi Chai, please, they could expect to pay $3.40. Desi Chai, please, will get you a tea for $5.40. And you will be stung $9 if you order your tea by saying Desi Chai. Usman Hussein said he hoped the method would promote good vibes only in the shop. He said, I think it's a nice reminder to use your manners because, unfortunately, sometimes we do need reminding. We've never struggled with rude customers, but since having the sign, people are definitely coming in more open and having a laugh with us. To me, the most important thing in my business is to walk through the door and be treated like you're a welcome guest. 
The inspiration came from an American cafe Mr. Hassan saw on Facebook years ago. He said he was yet to sting a customer for the full nine bucks, though, giving them a warning instead. If a customer doesn't use their manners, I point to the sign. They immediately ask again more politely. A lot of people can be quite rude in the mornings when they're waking up, but they see the sign. It makes them think at the end of the day, you never know what someone's going to do through or what's going to make them act rude, but it helps them to drop their guard. It gets them talking like an icebreaker, and that's what we're about. Any negativity gets left at the door. And punters appear to appreciate the move. Reviews online describe the Indian-inspired tea room as, quote, a lovely, quirky place with, quote, top-tier service. Reminds me of Bill's Barbershop back home in Summersville growing up. They had a sign on the wall, rudeness costs extra, and you get fined for cursing. Plus, it was a election day, of course, and then all fines were waived because you did not want to try to get your hair cut by billing them on election day because they're too busy talking politics and you're going to wind up with jacked up hair. It's just how it was back in the day. Let's be nice to each other. That'll do it for Herd Tell. Reach out to us, Herd Tell Show, on the Twitter at Herd Tell Show, the gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We're actually doing shows based off your questions. People send us little notes all the time. Hey, cover this. Hey, I don't understand this. Hey, I don't think this got covered correctly. We make whole shows out of that. It's a partnership. You're listening. We'll keep doing it as long as you're there. So however you're watching or listening, we sure do appreciate you. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you use your social media to tell a friend about us. We don't do any advertising outside our own social media. That really helps us out. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you leave a comment or a rating if you're given the option to on most of those platforms. It only costs you a couple clicks. Let's people know that our little program is worth following. Also, let's those platforms know to bump us up a little bit when they go to promote things as well. So until we talk to you again on Hertel, wherever you and yours are, across the street or around the world. We hope you are well. We hope you are well-fed. And when you're well-fed, hope you used your manners so they didn't sting you with an extra charge. And we will talk to you again real soon for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. So much lemon.